Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of Fishing for Problems. After the storming of the Capitol, I wanted to have a conversation with someone who has done research on how to have political conversations in the K-12 space. I found doctors Paula McAvoy and Diana Hess. For this episode, I spoke with Paula. I'll be talking with Diana in a few weeks. I have a longer introduction for Paula after this, but I did want to say that I state during our conversation that we will get to the events of January 6th. We didn't, but I hope that doesn't take away from the conversation we had. We talk a lot about the theory behind political classroom conversations, and at the end, we get into some strategies for how to do that. I hope this is more helpful than speaking directly to the events of the Capitol, because it should provide a blueprint for having all kinds of delicate classroom conversations, not just this week or this month, but rather in the years uh, ahead. I write about her 2013 article in this month's teacher newsletter, so you can read more about it there if you're curious to learn more. Enjoy the conversation with Dr. Paula McAvoy. I am joined today by Dr. Paula McAvoy, who is an assistant professor in the College of Education at North Carolina State University. She was previously the director for the Center for Ethics and Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I received my undergraduate degree. She has published multiple peer-reviewed articles and co-authored a book titled The Political Classroom, Evidence and Ethics in Democratic Education with Dr. Diana Hess. She also taught high school social studies in Los Altos, California for 10 years. Her research focuses on philosophical and empirical questions concerning the relationship between schools and democratic society. She addresses two broad questions in her research. What educational aims and practices are most appropriate for preparing young people for living within a non-ideal democratic society? And two, how should teachers and administrators make professional judgments about the dilemmas they face given non-ideal conditions? For example, what ethical challenges do teachers encounter when they engage students in discussions of controversial political issues? Professor McAvoy, welcome to Fishing for Problems. Thank you for having me. So I wanna talk about the events of January 6th, but I don't wanna rush into that. Um, You've done extensive research on how to have political conversations in the K-12 space. And I wanna explore that first, because as you have noted in your research, talking about politics in the classroom isn't simply about discussing important topics. It takes time, thoughtful planning and effort. And the storming of the Capitol is no doubt a significant event in American history, but it is just one event of the last four years. We have a new administration, so the conversation shouldn't stop there. Um, So I I was going back and forth on how to start this conversation. I was thinking about our brief email exchange. I mentioned that I think schools are political institutions. One of my introductions to this was Neil Postman in Charles Weingartner's 1971 book, Teaching is a Subversive Activity. Uh, And the work I did as a classroom teacher, the work I'm doing now in the world of education technology, the work I'm doing in my doc program, it all makes me believe unequivocally that teaching is a political activity and schools are political institutions. I would imagine that belief, this belief is not shared by some folks, that a lot of Americans believe that schools should be apolitical, that politics should come from the home, that events such as the storming of the Capitol on 1-6 should not be discussed in K-12 classrooms. So I thought we could start here to address what I imagine just might be a hard stop for some listeners. And so a few quotes, and I don't want to belabor the point, but in a 2017 paper, you write, quote, as an institution charged with promoting and preserving democracy, schools are not neutral. Instead, they are in part educating young people to value democratic principles and preparing them for democratic life. This means that schools may teach against against views such as racism or sexism that undermine the basic democratic principle of equality, end quote. 
In a 2013 paper, you state that, quote, teachers have not just the right, but also the obligation to engage students in deliberation, deliberation about genuine public controversies to help students learn discussion skills and also to introduce them to the range of views they will encounter as they move into adulthood. End of that quote. Uh, in uh, the line last year, you write, quote, the important question for our polarized era is not whether teachers should teach about controversial issues, uh, political issues, but how to do it in a way that is fair and promotes democratic ideals, end quote. And finally, in a few publications last week, you stated that this moment is an opportunity for everyone to deepen their understanding about democracy and social studies teachers should not let it slip away. So that was, uh, that was a lot there. Um, and again, I want to get to the events of January 6th. But before doing that, I want to just set the stage by exploring your research a bit. So can you speak more to those quotes, specifically why you think schools are political institutions? Well, I mean, I think one most obvious answer to that question is that they're public institutions. And when they're public institutions is that it means they are you know, they're part of the democratic state. So they are, people vote on their school boards, they vote on their um, superintendents, their school policy, they're affected by public policy in a way. So they're political in that they are managed by the state and that they are accountable to the people. So that's one way in which schools are political. Um, the other way is that the, the very idea of public education is grounded in the reality that if you wanna have a democracy, it means that you have some sort of assumptions about who people's capabilities and you think that they're able to engage in public reasoning. You think that they're capable of contributing to public policy. You think that they're reasonable enough to vote um, and engage in democratic life, but those aren't natural to human beings. So we um, schools, if you wanna organize your society in a democracy, it means you need to prepare people with the value, skills, and dispositions to engage in that type of work. And so schools were founded on the idea that you can't have an ignorant citizenry. You have to have, people have to be educated enough that they can participate in all of those activities that I just described. And so, um, the, you know, the founding idea of, a, of public education in the United States is that it is here is an institution that helps to maintain democracy. And so, to what's happened, you know, to, to think, no, what, that's not what we're doing. We're just preparing kids for jobs or we're just preparing them for college. And that's, that's just false. That's not the only thing that we're doing. <laughs> um, and so we have to, uh, we, we, we have to, as a society, kind of re-engage with this idea that, that democracies um, are fragile, as we've just seen and, or what we have been seeing and, they need to be maintained. It's not just we check a box, we wrote a constitution, we're a democracy, let's move on. It's the, no, it's, it's a thing that needs to be nurtured. And schools are one, it's not the only one, but certainly a very important part of that maintenance. Yeah, I like how you state in, uh, I think it's your 2013 paper, that democracy is a process, it's not a state. Um, and it's important to recognize, uh, recognize that. Um, and I think that also serves as the uh, one of the foundations of, you know, of your approach to this work. Um, I also want to address your use of the word neutral. Um, I use the word apolitical. Uh, schools are not Switzerland, you know, there is, in my opinion, there's no such thing as neutrality. And there's a useful concept in K-12 known as the hidden curriculum. Uh, you know, what's not said, what's not taught itself communicates to students and parents about the purpose of education. 
So what is being communicated to students, to teachers, to parents by not engaging students in political deliberation? Meaning if schools are political institutions, what does it mean if we're not actually engaging students in those political activities? So, I mean, if you're not preparing young people to engage in public decision-making, which is, that is democracy, um, then you, as I said in a different uh, you're contributing to its demise. That's um, just basically it. Like you, you, you're not going to be able to maintain a democratic society if you have not, if you're not preparing a generation to engage in the work of that society. Now, I don't, um, you know, so a lot of people can endorse the idea, well, you should learn what the constitution says, you should learn how a bill becomes a law, you should learn, um, you know, some basic, you know, founding principles and ideas and sort of like the, the just the basics approach to civic education. And that's, that's certainly one view, <laughs> you know, and it's that's a necessary, those are all necessary things to, to know. Um, but beyond that, that's, that's not enough to say, I'm ready to vote necessarily. When you get ready to vote, you have to start weighing competing values. You have to be able to engage with evidence. You have to consider what are the ramifications to my family, to other people's families. Um, and you need to, you need to have a, cl a clear understanding of what issues the country is facing today. And so um, if schools don't take the opportunity to start having young people learn about those issues, where they came from, what possible, how to think through complex problems, um, then you're leaving young people, you know, to the you know, to their own devices. It's a little like sex education. If you don't teach a good sex education, they're just going to learn it online and from their friends. So um, do we want to have uh, a well-informed public? Then we have, a, we have an important role to play. And when you look at um, a lot of the misinformation in the world today, um, I don't think, you know, there's lots of reasons why that is happening. But one thing that we can do is help people be, um, you know, they need to be informed. They need to be able to, they need more than the basics. The world is far too complex to think that you can have read the preamble to the constitution and now you know how to vote on climate change. <laughs> you know, these are these are big problems. And so moving, you know, a little bit towards the the how of doing this, uh, another quote um, from that 2013 paper, you say we call for teachers to create a political classroom that engages students in a pedagogical practice of deliberation so that young people are provided a meaningful, challenging, and authentic democratic education, end quote. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I guess first, what do you mean by uh, some of these terms? So political uh, and political classroom, can we start there? Yeah, great. So the book, in the book, The Political Classroom, Diana Hess and I, define that as political classrooms are classrooms that engage students in questions that ask, how should we live together? So to me, how should we live together is the fundamental question of a democratic society. The system is set up so that people can weigh in on the question, how should we live together? And that's everything from who should be the president to what are our gun policies? Should abortion be uh, legally recognized? Um, who's allowed to get married? All of these are questions that are at asking how should we live together at their, at their core. Um, and so I think that schools are places where you, um, where young people can learn 
how to engage in those types of questions. And that means there's a lot of skills um, associated with having those sorts of conversations, being able to listen to, to one another, um, being able to give reasons, being able to weigh evidence, being able to think about the competing values. And so, um, so I think a political classroom is trying to provide students with the knowledge, skills, and dispositions to engage in deliberation. And deliberation is essentially the activity that democracies should be engaged in, you know, on a, on a sort of a much global, a larger global scale. And so you mentioned earlier the idea of neutrality and what, to me, deliberation, uh, you know, neutrality is such a loaded word, as you mentioned, but it's, but deliberation is, a, is to, to me, it has a set of value. It has a set of democratic values inherent to it. I think deliberation is good because I value certain value. You know, I have certain, a certain set of values. Um, but it's all, but it's, it is a skill and it is an activity that can be nevertheless sort of non, nonpartisan in a lot of ways. Like we should be able to engage our partisan differences, our political differences, our ideological differences, our religious and ethical differences. So it's, a, it's about creating a space in which we can engage basically as many publics in the classroom um, to, to sort of habituate kids into a certain way of engaging with ideas and information. So what does that typically look like in practice? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, well, what research shows is that it's very rare, um, and that uh, that just the idea of having engaging students in discussions, so deliberation to me is a certain type of discussion about a policy question or about a, a, a what should we do question. Um, discussions can take all sorts of life. Still, you know, you can discuss a poem and the meaning of a poem. So there's all sorts of ways that the discussion may happen. But when you look at the research on discussions. Um, it's very rare in high school and middle school classrooms. Um, what you are most likely to see in a social studies classroom is lecture and PowerPoint and note taking and um, maybe some reading <laughs> and a little bit of research. And um, so, so the first thing is to recognize that it's 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 fairly it's unfortunately fairly unusual. But it's not not to say that no kids get um, the opportunity to discuss. The other thing that research shows is that the young people most likely to get to have sort of rich, interesting discussions in the classroom are usually higher trapped students and students of high social class, higher social class. So the more privileged you get, the more likely you are to have this sort of conversation in the classroom. And that's unfortunate for a democracy because that's, you know, people talking, the most privileged kids aren't getting the value of understanding how other people are affected by society, uh, it, you know, and it goes both ways. And so you need, um, you know, that one inequity in our school system is that we don't, that like the rich civic education experiences are not evenly distributed. But when it does happen in a classroom, <laughs> um, that we, what we show in the political classroom is we look at students at classrooms that do do this and do it pretty well. And, um, those teachers um, really design their courses for discussion. You know, discussion is something that starts getting laid down as one of the main skills in the class from the first day. They're able to create a community of learners where kids know each other's names. You have to be able to trust the teacher, trust your peers in order to have a good discussion. And so that's part of the culture of the classroom. And that teachers are preparing students for discussion with 
giving them materials that are that push their thinking in various ways, that give them both background and ideas, and then let use discussion strategies to have them talk through their differences. And so there's lots of structures and designs for good discussion that teachers can use that sort of scaffold kid, scaffold learning in such a way that students are learning the issue and they're learning how to discuss. And I appreciate that word scaffold because it's something that I've been thinking about as I have read through your research. I uh, so I, I read through um, your the 2013 paper with Diana Hess last week um, and one night last week and went and watched an episode of season five of The Expanse, um, which is a, a science fiction uh, geopolitical drama on a galactic scale, um, originally derived from a book. Um, but I got to thinking that these kinds of conversations don't need to start with politics, and maybe even they shouldn't start with politics. I'm curious if you've seen. Uh, educators taking uh, an alternative approach. But if the purpose is to help students take different sides of an issue, disagree respectfully, be part of a civil conversation about a seemingly controversial topic, why not start with something like sports or movies or books? You know, a TV show like The Expanse, you know, deals with complex political issues, most of which, you know, are ambiguous. They lack a clear right and wrong. And it might allow, might allow students to approach some of these topics in a I would say more objective ma manner. So instead of defending, you know, an existing political party or a position that maybe they, you know, aren't actually strong, they don't have a strong opinion about, but maybe their parents do, um, you know, they can defend a character in the book or they can defend a policy position in the book or an event in the book. Um, so I'm curious to hear just what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, no, I I think you're right on that. That what I that really good teachers um, are starting with, you don't go right into the, the deepest wedge issue in the United States. And I think that in a way, you don't even need to ever address, I mean, that's not, I mean, if you want to address the wedge issues, you can, but the more interesting learning happens when students um, have to dive into an issue that they haven't thought about that much before. And because it lets everyone let go of the answer that they know, right? So if I kind of grow up in a Democrat blue household or I grew up in a Republican red household, I can sort of sort the world real easily if I want to, um, if I'm pretty politically savvy, like, okay, I should think that or I should. And this is the problem in our country, right? That, that, that partisanship allows us to take too many shortcuts in some ways. Um, but so to, the for young people, they're, so much is new to them. And so the issues that are, uh, you know, get them out of that and have to dig a little deeper and think a little harder, those are the questions that, that are more interesting in the classroom. But to your other point, can they be fun? Yeah, like have some fun discussion. <laughs> um, so I, I am doing a research, as I'm in uh, study, a new, a new study actually with my political science brother, Greg McAvoy, and um, he, or, we are um, observing a civic education program and do collecting data uh, in Washington, D.C. called Close Up um, that some people have, may have heard of. And it's it, Close Up brings young people from around the country together to do place-based study. It's like a place-based uh, learning of, of the federal government for one week. But, but the students are coming from around the country and they get placed into geographically diverse groups. So they're with like this other group of kids for the whole week. Anyway, but they do an amazing job of 
mixing sort of fun and politics together. So they have these political discussions in the evening, but all through the day they're being mixed and paired up and moved around to talk about all sorts of things. And like they have um, one example was before they were going to do a, um, a, a kind of a political debate on a public policy issue. This one leader had them in the circle play this game. Oh, I have it over here. I bought it. Super fight. <laughs> um, that basically you like pick a card and there's a character and, a, and then two cards that are superpowers. And so you might have a leprechaun that can fly and, you know, blow fire or something like that. <laughs> and so, but they had them. So, you know, you have to create an argument. Why is my character going to beat your character? And it was, so this you know, it's six o'clock at night. These kids are exhausted. They haven't had dinner or, you know, they just came from dinner and she played this game with them where they had to do argumentation about these superheroes. Um, and it was amazing. Like they, it, they were thinking, they were laughing. Um, and it really just sort of set the stage for this next round, which is now to talk about like concealed weapons or something like that. Um, and so it was, I think that teachers really, um, this is part of the scaffolding of discussion is, and the building the trust in the classroom is to say, like, we can, we can play with ideas in here. Um, and there's lots of ideas to play with. Yeah. Easy, easing the tension and making sure that you don't sort of turn the dial to an 11 before you, before you <laughs> get started. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have seen uh, any schools trying to who are doing this or are trying to shift the attention away from national politics toward more localized politics because I feel like politics have become in a lot of ways nationalized and it's hard for students to see the impact of their policy positions on a local level which ultimately actually impact them significantly more oftentimes than anything at the national level um so i'm curious if you if you've seen any schools uh trying to engage students in in that kind of work yeah there's so in in illinois they've just in the past five years passed a civic education graduation requirement which um is in part sort of is that's part of what they're trying to do is get um you know, kids thinking about local, more local issues um, as well. There's a democracy schools network that is also trying to train, uh, you know, get schools to commit to create, like making democ democratic education as kind of an across the curriculum um, approach to learning. And that is often engages them in kind of community-based projects where they're trying to solve um, or address, you know, identify an issue that they care about and then move forward with that issue. Um, Mikva Challenge does a soapbox challenge where this is, this is a civic education um, program that it lives in Chicago but has moved to other parts of the country um, where young people give two minute speeches about an issue that they care about. And it's a speech competition, but it's also about, you know, expressing like, what are your local, like, what are the things that concern you most as a as a young person living in Chicago, if that's where you're living. <laughs> um, so I think, and then there's, you know, there's various, there's uh, We the People also does a middle school challenge where you try to get, where kids try to solve a local policy issue. So I think that there is a movement, a smallish movement around schools yeah. uh, of trying to, um, trying to bring the local into the classroom a little bit more. Great. 
Uh, so I have one more series of questions before getting, I think, a little bit more into specifics around the how. Uh, but your work is focused on getting students to engage in civil discourse, deliberate democracy, rich classroom discussion. And I want to explore sort of why you think this is an important skill, if you think this is the most important skill um, for uh, a sustaining democracy. Um, I, uh, today's uh, January 20th. Uh, I, I took down a quote from Biden's inauguration speech where he said that every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. Um, and I, I appreciated that sentiment. But you know, as I was reading through this, there appear to be a your work. Uh, there appear to be a range of skills that we can think about that ultimately help create this sustaining democracy. Democracy. You focused a lot on that civil discourse and deliberative democracy. I'm curious, like, why there? I know a lot of your research was done um, kind of in the late late 2000s and um, in early, uh, I guess, uh, 2010s. Um, I'm not even sure how to how to say mm -hmm. that. Um, and also, what other skills um, have you been thinking about that you feel like are critical to uh, helping students operate in a healthy democracy? I mean, I think the reason that um, one reason I'm drawn to deliberation is because it's sort of a skill rich activity. Mm -hmm. so like it requires you to read, analyze, weigh values, listen to others. Um, so I think there's a lot that packs into deliberation. I don't, but I'm also well aware that we don't live in a deliberative democracy. We live in a pretty contentious democracy. You know, it's a deliberative democracy is a democratic, a deliberative theory is a view of democracy that is far more ideal than the democracy that we live in. You know, so one might say, well, the better skills would be to like, uh, you know, just how to persuade people to your point of view and like that debate might be the better skill that you have to live in our current, you know, get a, get a view, argue it, push it, advocate for more people to get on your side, uh, you know, get petitions, march in the streets. These are all other skills that belong in democracy, that are, are part of democracy. And I think those are, um, you know, the, the, the willingness to act and do um, and make change and make phone calls and, and organize. Those are all really important skills in democracies. I think those are hard skills for schools to mm -hmm. um, advocate for uh, or to give students practice with. But you, I mean, because schools start to feel um, they do need, to, you know, they, they can't be partisan in the way that this is the school that trains kids to be um, good Democrats or good yeah. Republicans, right? They're not supposed to be doing that. So once you start setting, I mean, school, you can do that and you can let students engage in sort of more political activity. But um, I just think that the more activist the school um, endorsing, you know, that the, 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 the school is endorsing, the more, the more trouble the school you know, it invites. And so I think that's why you don't see as much of that sort of action. What are your thoughts on uh, media literacy? Does that fall into that sort of deliberation bucket or do you feel like that's that's separate? No, I think media literacy is a, another important skill that, I mean, I think it's not, um, it, it gets in deliberation because if you're going to, if the, evidence and views you want to bring into the deliberation are based on 
misinformation, um, then then you have a problem in your deliberation. So so it's related, but I think that there's a um, this the skill of trying to um, access information, evaluate information. It's 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 in there, but I think that can also stand alone. well, it's interesting as you, you know, as you responded to that, I was thinking about my experience as a sixth grade math teacher designing uh, lesson plans uh, and unit plans and thinking about uh, for every objective that I had, I had the new knowledge and skills that students needed to be successful, but I also had prior knowledge and prior skills. So that sort of like deliberation as that ultimate objective, the ability to do that, that skill, uh, it seems like media literacy certainly would be um, a subcomponent. Uh, of that. Um, And, uh, you know, it just seems to me that that is also just a critical skill. um, Because as you just alluded to, students coming to a deliberation with misinformation uh, are going to, uh, I just think, create opportunities for falsehoods to be uh, transmitted across populations. Yeah. I mean, I think back on, you know, it used to be when I was a teacher back in the day, I uh, the internet was fairly new. There wasn't so much missing, but I could have, I could sort of let students loose in the library and yeah. in the computer lab. And I'd feel okay with what was going to come back. But if you're a teacher today, you can't just let students, you know, go research what you find about whatever, because who knows where they're going to end up. And so um, you have to be, I think teachers, you know, first and foremost, they need to be better. You know, they, they need to manage the information that's coming into the classroom. And it's, one reality of today. Yeah, I mean, giving them a YouTube video and then telling them to click on a, a related or a linked YouTube video and do that ten times and see where they end up. Uh, yeah, that feel, feels Terrible. like. A, <laughs> how do you differentiate between deliberating with others versus deliberating with oneself? Uh, because I, I think this is connected to the media literacy piece, and I'm. Uh, because you you have, have you know said that we do not live in a deliberative a true deliberative democracy, there aren't I think a lot of conversations that go on where you even have opportunities for people with um, different viewpoints to talk to one another. I feel like a lot of people sort of live in their ideological echo chambers, and you know looking yourself in the mirror in the morning and thinking to yourself that you know the stuff that I'm reading on. I don't know, a site like Parler or reading some of the, you know, QAnon conspiracies just maybe isn't, uh, you know, isn't actually based in any sort of reality. Uh, And so how do you, how do you think about that skill? I mean, reflection is obviously a component of it, but yeah, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, so um, the, your, your first question was how do you differentiate between deliberating with others versus deliberating with yourself? And, and the first thing that came to mind was uh, my former co- colleague, he's a political philosopher, Tony Layden at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And he's written a book called Reasoning a Social Picture. And in it, it's, um, so he, make, this is, he makes a nice distinction between when we reason with another person. So he's saying reason, there's a thing called social reasoning, reasoning with another. And what you're doing when you're reasoning with another is you're necessarily concer- caring about their position. <laughs> like, mm. So you have, it becomes a less self-interested reasoning. And so if you, I think this is from his book, so if you're, re, if you and I are reasoning or trying, are trying to make a decision, a how should we live together decision about where should we go for dinner tonight, right? Um, the, 
we have to, you're going to say, I feel like this, I don't feel like that. And I'm gonna say, and then we're going to try to find something that we can be pretty satisfied with um, and just keep expanding that out into a democratic society. And deliberation is the political version of that, that when you're in deliberative theory, when you're deliberating, it is your necessary, you're in the theory, as the theory goes, you should be caring about the common good. You should be caring that you're trying to find the position that feels good enough to everybody. Um, and this is different that this is when I say we don't live in a de deliberative democracy is that the partisanship in our country um, is so divisive that, that it's it, it looks more <laughs> like the a, a game of winner take all that you just, the, the point is you, 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 you get the White House, you get the House, you get the Senate, you run the table as long as you can do it. You just run your agenda and it's like, forget about everybody else. Um, and so that's, um, but now, okay, so that, so deliberation, I think, has this, um, that there's this component of wanting, you enter it wanting to find a position that works well with others. Um, an internal deliberation can be more self-centered. Like I'm trying to figure out what I think about this thing or what, what I want to do about this thing. And you can be, it doesn't mean that you necessarily ignore everybody else, but it, it, it can be um, when one reasons in their own head, um, you can sort of be a little more self-interested if that's the, the question at, at hand. Um, and then you then were saying, okay, but now let, let's take the person who goes on to parlor and runs down a rabbit hole of <laughs> conservative conspiracy theory. So you're, I think you're asking, so what, what's the reasoning that gets them? Like at what, you know, there's some reasoning that must happen if I went down there where I was like, oh, that's enough. I don't want to know. Yeah. Like I'm not. I'm not going any further. <laughs> like, um, and I don't know that that's necessarily um, reasoning in this like purely cognitive thing. I think that there's like, I think that there's some social component to that or some psychological component that, that it's the psychology. There's something about going deeper in there that is fulfilling some psychological need versus some sort of like pure reasoning kind of approach. No, I, pr I appreciate that response. Um, so getting into the how for the last part of the conversation, um, some suggestions for um, for teachers engaging in this work, because uh, you have, I think, some great suggestions for folks. Um, in your 2013 paper, you have a list of best practices for discussions. The first one is students discuss and deliberate controversial political issues. Um, why controversial? Why not just sort of run of the mill, you know, political issues? <laughs> Yeah, that, I, I've sometimes wondered, maybe that's not the right word. <laughs> um, I, because it, it sort of triggers people to think it's hot, but, but to me, a controversial, I mean, a controversial issue, I think in my, my head is, a, is any issue in which there's multiple and competing mm -hmm. views. Right. Um, and so it can be, it, it can be the hottest wedge issue around, or it can just, it can be a sort of a benign issue that, that, that so it's, any issue in which it, it results in disagreement um, can be controversial. Um, and then I've elsewhere made a distinction between controversial topics and controversial issues. And um, I think that gets confused in the literature a lot. So controversial topics would be like racism, sexism, sex in the, you know, sex education. <laughs> um, and those are topics that, that teachers may want to avoid because they feel like they're going to get scrutiny from outside of the classroom. So these are sort of like, should, should that topic even be in the curriculum questions? Um, 
and versus a controversial issue, which is a, to me is just a what should you do question. Uh, second, um, best practice, students are asked to prepare in advance of the discussion. Uh, do you have examples of what students are actually asked to prepare? And second, why is this a good practice? So one strategy I like to use a lot is called a structured academic controversy. And it um, and this is a um, an approach, it's a it's a deliberative strategy that is grounded in cooperative, it comes from the cooperative learning literature, not from it, it sort of looks like it's going to be a debate, but it's not a debate. <laughs> but but in that strategy, you start by having students read a common background, common piece of writing that provides background to the issue. Um, and then they read competing points of view about the about the issue. And so that is enough, I mean, that's enough preparation actually. So you, um, it's, it's do we have a common starting point to have this discussion? So, um, and the preparation, it can also be, you know, our unit of study has been about, you know, civil rights for the last two or three weeks. And we're culminating in a question about um, some, some contemporary civil rights issue. And so the whole background can be sort of everything that you've learned up to that point. So um, the whole point of having background is that what is not good practice for teachers is to say, uh, you know, the, you know, a, a school shooting happened in our country over, you know, Friday, Monday morning, let's come in and talk about, should we change the gun laws? Like, <laughs> that's no preparation, right? So you shouldn't no. just bring conversations on young people. And if we don't, if we don't get them to a, a, a common starting point in the conversation, you're, you're bringing in all, you don't know what's going to come into your classroom. Um, and you're also handing the conversation over to the five students who know something about that issue. And so uh, having preparation also provides more students the opportunity to engage in the discussion because we now know something. The other two, I think, sort of go without saying, most of the class participates in the discussion and then teachers encourage students to talk to each other, not just the teacher. Um, so those four, I think, are, are helpful best practices. And then you also have four recommendations. And the first one starts with what to teach. You say that issues that are authentic and powerful representations of perennial issues that embody conflicts between fundamental values. Can you just provide an example uh, of this and just explain a bit about what you mean by perennial issues and embody conflicts between fundamental values? Um, well, so let's take the pandemic um, has a perennial issue of tension between um, individual liberty and sort of uh, safety, right, or security. So um, whether or not you have a mandatory mask policy or you're shutting down the economy, I mean, that whole thing shook down of the government doesn't have a right to tell me to do that. And yes, under certain conditions, you know, security matters more. And this is a perennial issue because it's the same that tension between individual liberty and security comes up throughout time constantly, you know, it's when you go to war, you're under that, you have that same question as well. So, you know, that, so that's a perennial issue has a common set, a set of values that are commonly in conflict and then they come up, um, you know, that, that that's a regular thing that we have to help young people sort of identify, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in this tension again. 
Yeah, and that's a useful example. I'm in Oregon, and our uh, our governor locked us down fairly early. Uh, there have been mass mandates, and the statistics have shown that whatever we're doing is working. Now, whether that's causation, whether it's correlation, you know, um, is hard to say. And I even have arguments about uh, whether or not what uh, she did was right, whether the fact that we haven't opened up schools yet, um, despite the fact that numbers are low, whether that's the right thing to do. Uh, and uh, and yet, like, again, the statistics clearly show that whatever's happening is benefiting us. But those those arguments, um, they still they still exist, um, even despite some would feel like fairly compelling um, evidence that uh, that whatever's been done has, has been done correctly. Mm-hmm. Another uh, recommendation, uh, you write sorting through the noise of the public sphere by teaching the difference between open and closed empirical questions and open and closed policy questions. Um, this was super helpful for me um, to, to think through um, just that, that framework. So can you um, just define what you mean by open and closed empirical and open and closed policy questions? Yeah, so an um, an open policy question is a basically a, a question of public policy that is open for our judgment. <laughs> um, it's open; it's live in the public sphere. Um, and so, uh, let's the, a, an easy way to make this distinction. I think is that we can have an open policy discussion about what should do about what, what, what should we do about climate change? That's open. Yeah. We don't, you know, there's various options and courses we can take to address climate change. But within that conversation, if a, if a teacher today wants to open that in their classroom, they're going to run into the question, is climate change happening? So that's an empirical question. A empirical question is a question that we answer with evidence. So what scientists say is yes, climate change is happening. What the public says is maybe it is, maybe it isn't. <laughs> and so a teacher now has to make a judgment um, that that. So they they or I would say they need to frame the discussion in such a way that that it's clear to students this empirical question, this question for which needs that is not based on your opinion, that is based on evidence. The evidence says climate change is happening. So we're going to treat climate change as happening as a starting point for this discussion. <laughs> um, the question, you know, and so to help students see that there are, that, that, that in almost every policy question, you're going to run into empirical, empirical questions. Now, some empirical questions are open for interpretation. So the right response to the pandemic is still you know, many countries made many decisions about that and probably, you know, it's going to take sorting through a lot of data to figure out what was the right course of action for where and what. <laughs> um, and so I think it's pretty clear that the United States took the wrong course of action <laughs> when we look at how other countries have fared around the world. But um, but there's still like in that moment, there was an open empirical question, new virus, what do we do? And so to have a discussion about what to do, you're um, all policymakers were in that moment operating with insufficient evidence, right? Because the evidence is unfolding. Um, so those are the, that those are the, um, that's the distinction between um, a poly, you know, a what should we do question versus a what should we know question or what do we know? Uh, the last two recommendations take advantage of ideological diversity of the classroom by engaging students in best practice deliberations. Uh, this is based on the belief that classrooms are much more ideologically diverse in their beliefs than students' uh, home lives are. So I I, I appreciate that one. And then finally, avoiding political proselytizing. 
Um, can you just speak a little bit to that one? Because I would imagine that there are teachers who are concerned uh, about wading into some of these political conversations because they're worried that they will come off as uh, proselytizing their own political beliefs. Um, and so what would you say to you know, teachers concerned about, about that piece? Uh, speaking of controversial issues, the question, should I share my political views in the classroom, is maybe <laughs> the most controversial, especially for social studies teachers. Um, and so what we mean by proselytizing is to um, what we say in the political, the book, The Political class, Classroom, is let, let's make a distinction between advocating your political position, meaning I'm going to try to convince students that I, I have this figured out <laughs> and that you should believe me. And I'm gonna use my authority in the classroom um, to try to persuade students to my position on what is an open policy question, a legitimately open policy question. So this gets a little dicey there, just what is a legitimately open versus not legitimately open. <laughs> um, so you can say some advocacy is generally not the right um, position to take in the classroom. But one might share your view. You might, and sharing means offer it. You know, it could be rejected or not rejected. Uh, it could be rejected or accepted. But to share your view means that you're treating your political view as one of the many views in the classroom and that you're, but importantly, giving students the opportunity to develop their own views, consider competing points of view um, and, weigh, and weigh various options. So I, to me, sharing your view is a pedagogical choice and it's not always the right choice to make. So some people mm -hmm. want to say, just always share your view. And I'm not in that camp. I think that, I think that what I, when I enter a classroom, what I want is a good discussion. And if I think mm -hmm. sharing my view undermines having a good discussion, then it doesn't belong there. Um, but advocating your view, generally not the right thing to do though. What's gotten real confusing for teachers <laughs> is, um, you're, you know, if a student is, you know, is trying to make a racist claim in the classroom, um, you either have to shut that view down or try to advocate, try to convince the student, like, this is why this is not going to be allowed. And this is what you're saying. This is what. So I think that's um, the Trump administration sort of opened up uh, and allowed into the public sphere a range of views that would normally be considered just beyond the pale of classroom discourse. And so that puts teachers into this position of like, I have to, I'm not going to allow that in my classroom. So what do I, how do I treat those? How do I treat those views? And one way might be to advocate against that view. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like it takes practice. You know, you just need to experience it multiple times to sort of feel when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate uh, and probably requires some training as well, some teacher training. Um, so I know we're up on time. I just have one more uh, question and, you know, a quick response um, will be will be fine. As I was reading your work and you all call this out, it seems like we're expecting students we're expecting teenagers to be better than the adults that they are uh, that they're viewing in the public sphere, and I'm just wondering if that's a reasonable um, reasonable ask uh, of kids. And and then and I guess also like this idea of transmit versus transform. And a sort of subsequent question that I had was, how do you help students envision the ought, what society ought to be? Um, and I think you know we could spend hours talking about both of those, but maybe just that first question. You know, how do you respond to the fact that again we are we are asking students to model things that they are just not seeing um, from their political leaders? You know, I have to. I guess um, 
Yeah, so there's our elected officials and the behavior of the people we see in the public all the time. And I think we can all be better than all of them. <laughs> so um, I just think that's not how human beings, like in, in a lot of ways, that's a performance, what you're seeing um, mm. you know, on the political stage. Um, when we're 100% of the time, when I see people have to face-to-face -face disagree with people, they do it in a, they're not being jerks about it. I mean, maybe... Certain family Thanksgiving dinners, it can get ugly. <laughs> but, but I've I've had we've been organizing at North Carolina State some um, events in which we bring young people and adults together to have political discussions, and we facilitate small group. These are people you don't know each other. Mm -hmm. You're with an eighth grader with a 35 year old with a 50 year old. So um, we try to have and we structure. We do a structured deliberation on political issues. Um, and people behave. People, once you give them some structure and some norms and, a, and the ability to be heard, and so we structure in that you get, to, you get to say one thing without anyone interrupting you as like the start of the conversation. But um, so when you do that, people, people will, people A, like it, and B, rise to the occasion. And so I think one thing, um, I, I do expect young people to be better than the than many of the people we see in the public, but I also know that when they get the opportunity to do that, they love it. So this is highly engaging. Students want to have these opportunities in classes, and when we can give it to them, they are totally bought into it. And so, um, and so it's not that I'm asking; it's not impossible. I'm not asking for anything. <laughs> um, they actually can do it. And so, and they want to do it. Um, and the world yeah. looks better when they see that it can be done. <laughs> when it can be done, yeah. And uh, as I think I alluded to earlier, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. Um, but um, if you believe in it, if you believe it's an important thing to do to actually have students practice democracy, um, then uh, that time and effort is certainly worthwhile. Uh, well, uh, Dr. McAvoy, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you um, coming on the show and um, I hope you have a, a great day. Thank you. I really appreciate it.